everybody and welcome back to Don't Praise the Machine. This is episode number 69. I am one of the people that's going to be speaking at you in this podcast as I do every week. My name's Alexander Holland and as always I'm sat digitally next to my number one pod puppet prince prancer. Shankalonka. Shankalonka, the the prince, the prince of pod puppetry, Shankalonka. The premium pod puppet. And can't believe it, we've made it to episode number 69. Mm. When I think of number 69, I think about the last possible television channel number available on the UHF band plan <laughs> for American terrestrial television from 1982 <laughs> till its withdrawal. At the end of 2011, Mm. when I think of 69, I think about a series of sex positions where two people perform oral sex on each other at the same time. Yeah. And when I think about 69, I think about the moon landing from the year 1969. Yeah. What kind of memories do you have? Um, Mostly the, just the atomic number of thulium. Uh, (laughs) What I think about, call me. Call me old fashioned, but I don't. I don't think about anything untoward. <laughs> no, I think about Woodstock Festival. Oh, also yeah. from the year nineteen sixty nine. Yeah, it's a good year. And we think of the summer of sixty nine. Yeah, so I was going to say, friend of the show Brian mm. wrote summer of sixty nine. I think he co wrote it with somebody else. I think there's actually a little bit of a dispute about. The meaning of the song. I think I think he co-wrote it, and I think he claimed more recently yeah. that it was about the sex position. And then I think the co-writer came in and said, no, 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 it's just about the year. Oh, and there's that song by, is it Ariana Grande? Has that song 35 plus 34. Ariana's music is filthy. Yeah, it's... All Ariana's songs are just... <laughs> it's absolute... Filth. I love it. Uh, yeah. Ariana. I really think. Friend of the show. I really think it's, I was listening to it actually in a cafe right here in the city of New York and um, reflecting on how we'd gone from when you and I were coming up in the world, you had people like Britney and Christina Aguilera yeah. doing much more like hit me baby one more time, right? Whereas yeah. Ariana just says, can you stay up all night? Fuck me till the daylight. There's no... <laughs> There's no, no mincing words. We don't have time to read between the lines yeah. anymore. The only bit of innuendo is 34, 35, because you could be forgiven for not understanding what that means. But then she says at the end, yeah, uh, it, the last two two lines in the lyrics are, means I want a 69, which you no know, shit, math class never was good. <laughs> so she leaves, she leaves it. She doesn't leave it to the imagination. I'm good on her. Yeah, I, I love, uh, she's got another song called Side to Side, mm-hmm. which I absolutely love. It's a jam, I believe, uh, produced by another hero of mine and friend of the show, Max Martin. Absolute pop music genius royalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, side to Side. And uh, that is apparently about 
suffering mild discomfort after an evening of penetrative sex uh, (laughs) from the the man and a lady get together. Mm, When they fall in love. When they fall in love, (laughs) when a man and a woman fall in love and they're in love so much (laughs) that they express that to one another sometimes for an entire weekend without leaving the home. Yeah. And then on Monday... When the woman has to go to work, yeah, she experiences mild discomfort in her in the loins. Got to walk inside to side. Ah, a little bit of bow legged, a little bit of bow, a little bit of it. She got that bow legged glow. <laughs> she's had a great time. She's been here all night. Yeah, she's been here all day. And whoa, oh, whoa, whoa, boy, you got me walking side to side. So John, being the international man that you are mm. because our producer Colin has organized a bunch of appearances for you and you went over to Canada yeah. for both a DPTM appearance and a wedding, I believe. It's true. Uh, yeah, obviously the wedding was was a um, happy accident. I was primarily there to promote the podcast. <laughs> like You couldn't believe it when you got the wedding invite because you said... <laughs> Oh, you're not going to believe it. I'm actually in town already that weekend. Yeah. Um, and Cole said, that's fine. Just don't uh, don't mention that because you want to write the trip off as a business expense. <laughs> um, and and uh, I'm grateful for that. But yeah, we both, you and I have both been in um, French speaking areas uh, yeah. for some reason uh, this last week. For weddings. Yeah, for weddings. That's true. Um, I was in the the beautiful city of Toronto, or Toronto as they call it there. Uh, Toronto. Um, and I used to live there as a kid between about 1988 and 1991. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a wonderful- Yeah, because your dad worked there. That's right, my dad. Time. You are an Australian family. Yes, we are. Melbourne family. We, I was born in Melbourne, and then when I was about six years old, I was whisked away to Toronto and lived there for about three years. And, it, you know, three years isn't very long, but when you're a kid, I guess it's longer and it kind of stands out in my memory because it's so different from the rest of my Australian childhood. Had snow, yeah. had tobogganing, all that kind of stuff. So it was really nice to go back and uh, revisit some memories and some old family friends. Congratulations to uh, Alex and Chris on their nuptials. Um, I think there, I think that some of the Murphy family are uh, listeners to the show. Um, and I appreciate that, but yeah, it was, it was lovely. I had a, I had a couple of days to, uh, in the lead up to the wedding to kind of walk around by myself. And I went uh, back to the house that I lived in when I was a kid and, uh, wow. kind of wandered around the block, just t- trying to see like if I would trying to see if anything would trigger memories and. Um, it's amazing what you remember, actually. Uh, the, the house itself and the kind of feel of the street was still very familiar to me. And I went round the corner to where we used to. There was a little ravine, and we used to go tobogganing down there. Um, and I went to my old school, which is only about like you know, it's a short distance from the house. And I walked along uh, around the kind of perimeter of the school, primarily because, well, two reasons. We've talked previously on the show about. Um, your efforts to try and when we've been together and in our 
youths, you've tried to kind of cement memories by saying, yeah. I just want you to remember this moment and <laughs> just kind of fairly arbitrary <laughs> moments. But, um, but yeah. it somehow works because you kind of do make a note to solidify it in your memory. And when I was a kid, I remembered being at this school and knowing that I was about to go back to Australia and that it would be a while before I would see snow or anything, which I, I was only probably eight and a half. So this seems quite uh, precocious, but I was, I remember standing in the playground and just really taking it in, uh, taking in the falling snow, letting it fall on my tongue. So I went and stood in what probably was around the same spot and just, you know, communed with my younger self and also had a good look at the cyclone wire fence that surrounds part of the school because one of my more vivid memories from that school is the time when my brother Tom, shout out to Tom, uh, was running uh, running along in the playground and he he was um, impaled. His thumb was impaled on the fence. And, uh, yeah, you told me this. And my mum and I were, were – because he used to be able to leave the school and go and have lunch, which was um, sort of quite unusual by Australian standards. But we were at a nearby pizza place for lunch and we went back to the school – and some kid came running out and and had in the way of kids, you know, probably said something like, Tom's dead. Because <laughs> he just like, <laughs> he'd, he'd like been through the- Tom's died on the fence. Yeah. So, Tom was trying to escape school <laughs> exactly. and he didn't make it. He got, he got shot by the, one of the guards in the tower. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so my mum rushed out to see what the deal was. And I went up to a class and I had just eaten all this- I just eaten a pizza pocket from Pizza Pizza, and I, th- yeah. and I threw up in the classroom bin because yeah, I was, of course, I was so nervous and had a weak stomach. And then um, it turned out Tom had yeah he'd just been running along and there was a bit of loose wire and it had gone through his thumb and he'd gotten stuck. And then the oh, fo- fire department went and co- and cut out you know a segment of the fence and uh, what he was like properly trapped. Yeah, apparently so, and they. He still, for I think my mum said she still has the bit of wire that they gave him for posterity <laughs> that they took <laughs> took out of his thumb. She still because she still has the thumb in a jar. Yeah, just on the mantle, prominently displayed on the mantelpiece. <laughs> it's Tom's Tom's thumb wire. She shows it to all the guests, and I always have to say, this is fairly esoteric. I don't think they're gonna <laughs> just show them some standard photos of us. And she says no. It's a special occasion. We're going to dust off the thumb wire. (laughs) (laughs) So that was nice. And it's a lovely city. It's kind of, you know, that sort of North American ideal. Big houses, big front yards, uh, maple trees, all that sort of stuff. So that was good. Mm. And I almost had a meeting with with GP, host of the episode uh, of the podcast, GP in Marseille. Uh, yeah. Or perhaps co-host at least, um, but unfortunately we missed each other. But shout out to GP. Hopefully we'll uh, we'll cross paths next time. Yeah, I'd seen him the day, like I just saw him at my wedding. Mm, that's right. He was the photographer at the wedding that I was at, and you were in Paris. Paris. I went to Elena and Dan's wedding in Paris. It was at a chateau. Wow, it was spectacular. Mm. I felt very lucky to be there. We had a great time. Everybody was in a great mood. It was love Aww. all around, 
And it was a great wedding. It was one of the best weddings I've been to hmm. in the history of weddings. And I've been to quite a lot of weddings. Yeah. Was it? Was the chateau outside of Paris or? Yeah, but, but it was an hour outside of the city. Okay. Yeah. Outside of the city centre in the beautiful countryside. Hmm. And I spent, I spent a few days in Paris as well after the – we had a few days in Paris after the wedding. Yeah. Which was really nice. Had you spent time there before? I was there once. I was I was in Paris once before ten years ago mm-hmm. for a weekend, mm-hmm. and it didn't really grab me the first time I was there. I got it was when I was living in London. Mm. I had no money. Mm. We actually got the tr- we got a bus from London that, that went on a train that I guess went through the Channel ah, Tunnel, the old Channel. And it was so I was on a bus on a train, and I just remember that we got held up in the tunnel. There was a massive queue, and we were on this darkened bus trying to sleep. <laughs> And the driver just kept softly playing The Power of Love by Frankie Goes to Hollywood like <laughs> over and over and over again. And so I was in this kind of weird like sleep in and out haze yeah. with that song just The Power of Love. <laughs> and then I'd fall asleep with a voice from a, Make It Your Goal. And then I'd go oh, and wake up and then I'd fall asleep. <laughs> And then I'd wake up again like 10 minutes later and the, st- the song would still be playing. Yeah. I just was like, what is going on? Why, <laughs> Why is it the same song? It? How long was I asleep for? <laughs> I thought I slept for 10 minutes. And now it's because uh, yeah, it's just never ending. <laughs> Trapped in this tunnel under the sea on a bus. Maybe you thought if I just keep playing the same song, people will think, well, it can't have been that long. The song's still on. Power of love. I mean, is- what does the song go for? It's like three or four minutes. <laughs> yeah. It must be. We can't have been here that long. So, yeah, last time I just did all the touristy stuff mm-hmm. and that's fine. Yeah. But that's not really what Paris is about, mm. people. Mm. I'm telling you, if you are a basic-ass bitch that's going to the <laughs> Eiffel Tower and the Sacre Coeur and the Pompajompajar, whatever it's fucking called, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's all fine, whatever. But it's about sitting at those millions of cafes, yeah. the little circular tables that they got out the front, and you sit right down, and a friendly waiting person comes over and says, what do you want? You can just sit here and drink coffee and beer and wine mm. forever mm. if you like. And you watch the street life. So we did that loads. It was great. It's it was, nice. Everybody was really lovely and friendly, and we, we, we did that a lot. But what it made me think about and what I wanted to talk to you about today mm-hmm. Was it made me think about the famous people, some of whom are people that have been raised on the Don't Praise the Machine podcast before, who have connections to Paris mm. or who perhaps live there. Mm-hmm. So the first one is friend of the show and Parisian resident since God, I don't know how long he's lived there for. You'll and you'd, you'd never guess this. You'd never guess that this person lived in Paris. Uh, you'd think. Oh, you know, that's such a surprise. Mm-hmm. And that's Wes Anderson. Oh, Wes Anderson yeah, lives in Paris. I thought he might be living in Las Vegas or somewhere. I thought he, yeah, I thought he might have been in like Detroit, Detroit. or something <laughs> yeah, like that's that. Right. But it turns out yeah. that Wes Anderson is a Parisian uh, resident. Hmm. And another person who is a Paris resident since I think 2013 mm-hmm. uh is friend of the show Macaulay Culkin. Oh, he lives in Paris. He lives in Paris. Uh, that's that's less expected than Wes, isn't it? It is. And I like to think that Wes and Macaulay mm-hmm. are probably just best friends <laughs> in Paris. And they're probably <laughs> hanging out together. Yeah. And so I like to think 
that maybe we could get Macaulay into a Wes film. Yeah. And it could be a kind of universe mashup. Yeah. So what I was thinking is like if Mac and Wes. Yeah. I love their little short names, by the way. I love Mac and Wes. Mac and Wes, yeah. Mac and Wes are hanging out and probably Mac says to Wes, come on, Wes, you got to put me in your next one. Mm. you got to put me in your next one, Wes. And then Wes is like, oh, Mac, I don't know about that. And then Mac says, you know, Royal Tenenbaums came out 20 years ago and we all know it's been all down here from there, Wes. Look, fair enough, it's Royal Tenenbaums is one of the greatest movies of all time. Yeah. But since then... It's, I mean, it's led us to the French Dispatch. Yeah. And that's, that's not okay. And then <laughs> I haven't even watched Max it. Says, then Max says, here's what I'm thinking. What we do is we get my character, Kevin McAllister, mm. from Home Alone, mm-hmm. and he comes into the Wes Anderson universe. So it's a brand new Wes Anderson film. And I was thinking <laughs> that that Kevin McAllister from Home Alone, he could be like the fly in the Wes Anderson ointment, much like Royal Tenenbaum. Royal Tenenbaum was in the Royal Tenenbaum. Yeah, he made that film. It's like you got the dour, dry Wes world. Yeah, but then Royal's a bit of a clown. Yeah, that's true. That's what makes a bit of a kind of brash loudmouth. Yeah. So I was thinking, Kevin. Yeah. He's forty-one years old. Okay. He goes to Paris with his parents for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> but they just forget about they just forget to wake him when they have to go to the airport yeah. and go back to Chicago. Yeah. So then Kevin wakes up and he's like, "Oh no, my family's all gone back to Chicago. <laughs> I'm alone. Less of an issue now that I'm a middle-aged man." <laughs> <laughs> and he looks at himself in the mirror and he goes, "I made my family disappear." <laughs> and then <laughs> Like experimenting with aftershave at 41. (laughs) (laughs) And then he goes downstairs Mm -hmm. and meets the hotel, like, uh, concierge. Mm. It's just Jason Schwartzman. Mm, And he's smoking cigarettes. He's never smiling. And he's just (laughs) acting cool. Yeah. And it's never explained why we're in France and everyone's speaking English with a combination of American yeah. and French accents. Yeah, sure. That's fine. <laughs> and I haven't really, um, I haven't fleshed out much more of the script, yeah. but uh, I was thinking that there could be a series of cameos where a bunch of people appear for between one and two lines. Mm. So you've got Angelica Houston, Tilda Swinton, Edward Norton, Eddie Norts, Luke Wilson, Willem Dafoe. Adrian Brody, Bill Murray. Bill Murray. Mm. Yeah, get the whole gang. Maybe you could also mix in some some characters, some beloved characters from the Home Alone franchise as well. <laughs> well, this this is what I was thinking. So I was thinking that that yeah, obviously it's just going to look beautiful. You're going to have your stylized Wes. Yeah, fit, you know, you're going to have your anamorphic lenses for anybody out. That's a bit of a nerdy film uh, thing. That's a beautiful wide-angle lenses with the black bars, mm. beautiful lens flares, meticulous attention to detail. You can't really tell the time periods. Classic Wes. Yeah, but I was thinking that again. I haven't fleshed this. I haven't really fleshed the script out. Yeah, what I was thinking is that at some point it becomes apparent that the wet-slash-sticky-bandits, played by Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern, <laughs> playing Harry and Marv, yeah. they happen to be in Paris, yeah. and they're preparing to steal the Mona Lisa. Oh, that's good. From the, from the Louvre. Mm. 
And Macaulay, I think he overhears this while he's just hanging out with Jason Schwartzman mm. somehow. We haven't, we haven't worked that out yet. Mm-hmm. And the, I think the, the film just essentially writes itself from there on out. Basically, Kevin then um, sneaks into the lure of the night before the sticky wet bandits rob it, just puts a ton of booby traps <laughs> in there. And then the wet bandits, the like, sticky bandits, they try and rob that Mona Lisa. They get flame thrown and tarred and feathered. <laughs> all, and all with like cut, punched. Yeah. All, thumbtacks. They're just kind of slow motion footage of them falling over onto a bed of thumbtacks with a bit of Nico playing. <laughs> I'm going to kill you, you dirty kid. <laughs> and then Harry and Mar, like Harry and Marva, just the 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 kind of end of the film was then they're just tied. Harry and Marva just tied up, yeah. back to back on the floor with rope around them, and they're tarred and feathered, mm. and there's all smoke coming off them. And Kevin's left a little note on them, which explains to the authorities what they done. Yeah, and then Adrian Brody is the cop, and Adrian Brody <laughs> just quips something in a deadpan delivery. Mm. And then some beautiful Edith Piaf plays. Yes. That's a great idea. It's actually, it's quite amazing that you have been having those thoughts, uh, particularly about Wes Anderson and the Royal Tenenbaums, because uh, one thing that I mentioned to you during the week is that while I've been here in New York, I have passed a few kind of grand, beautiful hotels, and I've been wondering about, you know, the kind of, I've, I've been contemplating the allure i've also been spending time in in hotels most of the time i've been here and i really enjoy it because it's kind of a rare treat and it always makes me think about those people who are like permanent residents or at least have a kind of years-long stint in a particular hotel yes um and the tenenbaum family was royal was basically in that position royal lived in a royal lived in a hotel after his uh divorce from the angelica houston character Mm. so she was left in that beautiful um like apartment in I guess it's in New York mm-hmm. and uh That's right. And Royal moves out into that hotel and lives there for the rest of his days until he's until he's eventually kicked out. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And uh because it's I mean it's I don't know why, but I've always had that I'm sure a lot of people have had that sense that that would be a very attractive way to live for a little while because I don't know, there's something about the hotel which is just feels like its own little universe and you kind of develop a rapport with various hotel staff, the porters and the people at the front desk and your needs are kind of met in a way that's very pampering and pleasant and also the, you know, it feels like a very contained little world. And I love it. I love a rubbish shoot. Uh, I just love, ah. I love the, I was staying in a place in Toronto, which was on about the 25th floor and I would just uh, find an excuse to throw something out so that I could put it in the chute and then just hear it go <laughs> down 25 floors. And you just and you just feel like, man, I, I really don't 
savor taking the rubbish out and putting it on the footpath. But this is kind of a this is such a pleasurable <laughs> alternative to just it just la- lands really... in some room you'll never have to go to. And yeah, you, th- you thought your my life should have more shoots. Yeah, exactly. It. I love a shoot, and I love. I mean, it's kind of tied to my fascination with those pneumatic tubes. You know, I've often w- wish yeah. wish that I lived in an uh, that I worked in an office where they. My my legal briefs were delivered to me via via tube, but doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> despite my despite my it's repeated very, requests, it's a very kind of it's a very like steampunk yeah. era. Exactly, yeah. That sort of that that I don't know. There's something about that kind of technology of things flying to you from unseen places. And yeah, I mean, New York's a classic example. You got the the Chelsea Hotel where. I think Sid Vicious lived there. I think Mark Twain lived there for a bit. I think, yeah. Uh, I think um, was it Joni Mitchell who lived there for a while, and uh, Patty Smith, Patty Smith, Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan, all these kind of literary and Arthur C. Clarke, all these literary and pop culture and musical artistic figures had their own little cool kind of commune, and no doubt had lots of crazy parties there. Um, so if anyone would like to offer me that opportunity, I'm more than willing to do some PR for your hotel if that gets me a a free it doesn't have to be the best room, but I just wanna I just wanna live that life for a bit. You can move into just a uh, a Marriott hotel <laughs> or Yeah or uh <laughs> would be like some three star just some three star chain. Yeah, exactly. Just the Bendigo Motor Inn or something. I could try try my Old best the- to have like a Bohemian commune in just a kind of shit house, <laughs> just shit house urban motel. <laughs> Two star motel and just eccentric old John Maloney, the barrister, just lives in there. <laughs> trying to trying to kind of strike up a rapport with the person who works at the front desk and they're just not having it <laughs> asking asking if they can have the concierge sent up to your room mm. to have a conversation with you exactly. about some things you need once again sir i'm not a bellhop we don't have bellhops <laughs> <laughs> When I was in Paris, we went to a cafe and we went in and the waitress said, the menus, you just scan the QR code mm-hmm. and it comes up on your phone. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's fine. I've seen this before. I'm actually not a massive fan of this because I don't like the small amount of real estate that you have on a phone screen to peruse a menu. Thankfully, yes. the menu is quite short, so fine. Yeah. Whatever. I see the advantage. You don't have to like print new menus when you change the menu or whatever. So cool. Scan the thing. Beautiful. And then we just say to the waitress, we'd like this and we'd like this. She goes, beautiful. I'm going to get that for you. Mm -hmm. So we finish the meals and I say to the waitress, we'd like to pay now. And she says, all you do is you rescan the QR code on your table and you can pay. Hmm. And I said, I can't (laughs) picture how this is going to function, but I'm going to give it a go. Yeah. So I scan the code and sure enough, I get presented with this little screen that says, do you want to pay now? I go, sure, pay now. And then it says, 
you, like, do you want to just go to your Apple wallet mm. and pay with one of those cards? And I go, yeah. And then it goes, yeah, this is how much it's going to cost, like 60 euro. Mm-hmm. And I just do my little thumb. Mm. And it just paid the whole bill without me having to interact with the waitress at all. Mm. And it just went, ding, ding, ding. Yeah, you're paid. You can just walk out. <laughs> I was like, this is the best. Mm. Because if you think about, you know, it's, it's it's not uncommon to be at um, restaurants, cafes and stuff like that. And it can be quite, if it's busy as well, you know, the waiting staff, it can be quite difficult to to nab them to be able to pay. Yeah, like, and I was true. At a, I was at a place in Berlin, like, I'll say two months ago. And I swear to God, they were so flat out and the place was so big yeah. that it took me maybe 25 minutes of running around to be able to get somebody. It was getting to that point where you start going. Maybe I'll just leave. It's not unreasonable for me to walk out yeah. if you do not want to take my money. Yeah. And yeah, I just thought, wow, this makes all the sense. Mm. And we just w- walked on out. And I thought, it's great, man, I'd love to see this in uh, more places in Berlin. But Berlin is like the has an allergy to a cashless society. Really? You need cash everywhere. Yeah, man, you can't pay. Well, it's, there's a couple of places that post-pandemic are doing it a little bit better. Mm. Shout out to Birgit and Beer. Birgit and Beer is the shining example. Birgit and Beer, sponsor this podcast. Mm. You guys are doing it right. Mm-hmm. Birgit and Beer is this amazing, massive like club slash beer garden place with shitloads of tables. Yeah. And you just sit at a table and the waiting staff come over with iPads and all manner of pads. Yeah. And you order a beer, you pay for it immediately. Like they just go, yeah, beer, what do you want? A beer and a pizza, sure. And then you just tap your card. Yeah. And then they have another like set of staff that bring you the beer and the pizza Mm -hmm. quick smart. Mm. And it's already paid for because they charged you when you ordered it. Mm. And yeah, so shout out to Bigger and Beer. Yeah, I think Australia's- uh, quite advanced in that way because we're not yeah i think it probably we're is fairly cashless uh and there's also not an established tipping culture although there's a bit more tipping than they used to be but it's not a you know just a it's not done as a kind of matter of course obligation which i think means that although there are ways to automate that obviously i think it just means that that the kind of mindset is a bit more cashless and because you don't need to carry around like small sums of money to add to whatever you owe. And then, mm. and I remember going to a, um, my first experience with anything like this was was years before COVID. I went to a Japanese restaurant where they had, you know, like a screen and you would just scroll through and, and they'd have little pictures of all the items on the menu and you could just make a little, uh, keep a cart basically and then order it at the end, pay for it at the end. And then the wait staff would just bring it to you. So you really had no... Uh, there was no process of ordering or paying through people. It was just the people who were bringing it to you. And I just thought, man, the only thing this is missing is robot waiters. And that yeah. that would make it a perfect humanless experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just walk in, just walk into a restaurant mm. and just have no interaction with any human. Mm whatsoever sit at a table and uh, and you know your meal could be brought to you by shoot which you'd love <laughs> oh, fuck yeah i'd love it. pneumatic tube yeah you'd have a pneumatic Thump. you could have a Thump. you could have a three course meal roast dinner that comes to you in a tube mm. pneumatic tube oh that's my dream <laughs> pneumatic nibbles <laughs> come to pneumatic nibbles tube treats <laughs> 
the um the other thing I regret not living in the era of, which is kind of related to the tubes, is those automat automated cafes. I think they were called automats or something. Yeah, which, uh, is that right? Which used to be more prominent, apparently, and or more common in the um, in America and places like that. I think it was a similar thing where th- you know you'd have basically a a minimal interaction with people, and it was kind of an elaborate vending machine situation. Yeah, I forget what year you see those photographs. I think they're from the forties, fifties, or sixties, mm. and they are. There would be a wall of tiny little doors with windows that you could see in, and you would just go up. I guess behind the wall were the people preparing the meals. Yeah, and they would populate the little windows with the meal, and you would go up and pop a few coins in. And you'd be able to get like a hot meal or something from one of these little windows. And I guess it was meant to be the future. Yeah. And, and yeah, for whatever reason, it never took off. Mm. And uh, it's probably a bit of a cultural thing. I feel like it's the kind of thing that probably would take off somewhere like Japan, which is the vending machine capital of the world. Yeah. There's some crazy number of vending machines per person in Japan. Right. Um, and... Yeah, and it never took off. So it's strange looking at those photographs because it looks like an idea from the future, but it's just mm. fifty years ago, sixty years ago. I suppose the the new the the new vending window mm. is Uber Eats. Mm, that's true. Yeah, and we've often talked about you know we're waiting here for drone yeah deliveries. We've got an update from our boy Patrick Koo, who's our uh, correspondent in uh, Los Angeles. Yeah. And he let us know that they're still waiting for the green light on that. Maybe you'd left when he told me this. Right. They're still waiting for the green light on that um, Los Polos drone loss. Yeah, Los yeah. Polos drone delivery. Yeah. Is, uh, it's still coming soon. So Patrick, <laughs> who who we keep on a retainer, uh, <laughs> he's getting very expensive. Yeah. He's going... He's our man on the ground on the West Coast. He's going to let us know. He lets us know all things... Well, actually, we don't talk to him. He talks to Colin, the yeah, producer. Yeah. And Colin let us know the only th- that Patrick said. Because we said, where's the fucking story from Patrick Cole? Get on his ass. Mm. We want to talk about the drone t- the drone tacos mm. more. Yeah, the, Colin, the only time we hear about him now is monthly monthly meetings where Cole says, look, we've here's the, here's the expenses column. You can see there <laughs> you've, got, you've got Patrick on a retainer. And maybe we should maybe we should at least give him a slightly broader portfolio so that he can come to us with different stories, even like other fast food stories. And we say no. He's been given a very specific task, which will which will pay off. Patrick's Patrick's beat is <laughs> West Coast drone food delivery, and that's it. We don't want to hear anything else from him. <laughs> Have they? Have they approved the Los Polos uh, drone yet? No. Okay. Well, sit tight. <laughs> Keep your ear to the ground. That's what the stipend is for. <laughs> just up, should we say to Cole, just up the Patreon membership again. It's now $200 a month for patrons. <laughs> and we don't, we don't see any of that money. It's all going to Patrick. <laughs>
Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to episode number 69 of Don't Praise the Machine. It's been so much fun talking about Macaulay Culkin and Wes Anderson, best friends in Paris. We love talking about John gone back to that Canadian childhood that he loved so dear. <laughs> we've loved we've loved talking about new ways of ordering food. Living in hotels. We love talking about Macaulay Culkin, Wes Anderson mashups. And please reach out if you've got any other ideas that we can pitch to Wes and Mac. Thanks, everybody, so much. I've been Alexander Holland, your number one pirate. As always, I've been here with my number one podiatrist of podcastery. <laughs> Got to be the name of... Shamalama. Number one podcast podiatrist, Shamalama. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next week at the podcast. 